0: The following message is from the 2012 IBCD Summer Institute, Changed by Grace. It would probably help you to follow in your notes in the outline on page 29. I don't have a PowerPoint. Uh, if I had done a PowerPoint, probably the one slide I would have created would have been of the, the Incredible Hulk. Um, we're going to be talking about anger and the reason why the Incredible Hulk is an effective comic character is because there are a lot of incredible hulks. Actually, all of us can be the Incredible Hulk, and in that someone who's mild-mannered uh, lady or gentleman, under the right level of provocation, can turn into a monster. And the the talk is going to be how, by God's grace, anger can be overcome. And really, one thing we wanted to do in these conferences sometimes is kind of go back to the basics. These are the types of issues we would cover in the basics course. I remember about 20 years ago hearing Jay Adams give a talk on anger at one of these conferences, and some of that I'm remembering and using today. Uh, Anger is a big problem in the world. I I follow some sports, and a few weeks ago in England there was a guy who was winning a tennis match, the final, and he didn't like a call or something, and so he's furious. He's up, up a set, he's in the second set of three, and he gets so angry he kicks this wooden sign which shatters and a massive uh, shard of wood goes into the leg of the linesman I believe the linesman whose call he did not appreciate and starts gushing blood and the guy has to forfeit the match who kicked the sign and uh, maybe some of us can think of times when we have exploded in anger and said things or done things of which we're deeply ashamed and it's not just the world where this is happening. It's, it, it happens in the church. J. Adams writes in the Christian Counselor's Manual that anger is a problem for every Christian, and sinful anger is probably involved in 90% of all counseling problems. Now, I can't think of the 10% when it hasn't been involved. And actually, here are some composites of actual cases over the last few years. Um, you have, names are changed, but these are real situations. Here's... Angelo, his wife Cheryl, has deeply betrayed his trust. She tried to confess that to him with tears, but he erupts in screaming, calls her nasty names, accusing her of lying even in her confession, promising that he's going to divorce her. It's over, he says. And there's a lady named Grace. She gets frustrated with her husband because he doesn't pay attention to her when she is talking to him. And so, maybe weekly, she flies into a rage, hitting. She's thrown glass objects down the stairs to shatter to the terror of their kids. Uh, Her husband is fearful for the safety of the children. The neighbors have called the police. And the husband's considering moving out just for his own safety. And then there's Patty. And she works for John, who's a well known Christian leader. But it's a very stressful environment. Things are tight in that ministry. And one day when Patty kind of messed up in some administrative matter, John chews her out screaming at her in the office. And she can't believe that this great man would treat her worse than her secular bosses had treated her when she quit the higher paying job to go do ministry. And yet she doesn't know to whom to turn because she really didn't think anybody would believe her that the great man John would talk that way. And then Peter's married to Jane. Now, Peter is a domineering, micromanaging husband who is angry at the world. He grumps about the politicians. He yells at the radio. He's mad. He can't find a church he's happy in because none of them really have appreciated his gifts. One day, Peter comes home and finds that Jane and most of her things are gone. He didn't even know there was a problem. But she made up her mind, you can't please this man anyway, I might as well go ahead and make a life for myself now that the kids are grown. Or Scott. He's excited to be working for a new Christian boss in a company that's supposed to be founded on Christian principles by a man named Rusty. But Rusty, he sees now in meetings, has uncontrollable anger, screaming at employees, humiliating them. Now this company, uh, has been something that Rusty kind of sees as a ministry. It has a very open and public identity as Christian. Uh, but no one has the nerve to confront Rusty about his outrage. And another thing that Scott has observed about Rusty is he changes churches every one or two, three years because he just can't find a place quite frankly where he's in control. Well, why do we act this way? Each of these people would have a justification. Angela would say, well, My wife deserved that after betraying me. Grace might say, well, I know I'm ashamed when I get mad and throw things, but I just can't control myself. Maybe I need to take a pill or something. John would say, well, Patty put our ministry at risk. We could go under financially. So many people are depending on us. I had to get her attention so that she'd do the job right. Jane would say, I'm sick and tired of being treated like a child by this man. Uh, I've had it. God will forgive me. And then Rusty, being a driven individual, says, well, our, our company employs many people and helps families and we help ministries. It's, it's all, I'm doing this all for them. Well, how can people like that be shown their anger and then change? And that's really at the center of what we're trying to do as biblical counselors. First of all, just to understand anger, anger is an emotion and one thing I've done for this talk is I've spent some time on the website of the American Psychological Association. And one thing that we, when we teach counseling, have explained that psychologists often are reasonably good at description of problems. Their prescription usually stinks. But their description can be reasonably accurate. So their website says, anger is an emotion, emotional state that varies in intensity from mild irritation to intense fury and rage. Robert Jones, in his excellent book, on anger says, anger is our whole-personed, active response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil. In in these definitions, uh, people will talk about I have a righteous anger. Well, friends, all anger seems righteous to the person who's angry. Anger is really our, our we're made in the image of God to have a sense of justice, and we sense that the balances of justice are off. Our anger is our effort to do something to make. The balance even again. And when we feel like we've been treated unfairly or things aren't right, we want to get what the Bible would call revenge, to avenge what is wrong, to make it seem fair again. Anger also has a physical component um, that you know, Moses, when he saw the golden calf, it says his anger burned. When Cain's offering was not accepted, he became angry and his countenance fell. The APA website says, like other emotions, it is accompanied by physiological and biological changes. When you get angry, your heart rate and blood pressure go up, as do the levels of your energy hormones, hormones, adrenaline, and noradrenaline. Uh, Anger is also active. Angry people do things. When Moses was angry and burning with anger, what did he do? He threw the tablets, stone tablets, to the ground and shattered them. He took the calf and ground it up into powder. Uh, that's where anger can be dangerous. Now, anger is not necessarily sinful. Many places in the Bible, actually, in my Bible reading this morning in Isaiah, it talked about God being angry. God is holy and just, and when his justice is violated, uh, you know, it says the anger of the Lord burned against Moses in Exodus. In, in the Psalms, it says he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way. Jesus was angry. It says, looking indignantly around them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. You know the the story where he overturns the tables in the temple and he's angry at their abuse of worship. Uh, So righteous anger is even possible for us, although as we're going to see, righteous anger, I believe in us, is relatively rare. Anger can also be very deceptive. Our hearts are deceitful, and typically angry people are justifying their anger Sometimes it will be a denial. I'm not really angry. I'm just frustrated. And they use other words because if they're Christians, they know that to say you're angry is to admit you're a murderer. Um, Sometimes people say horrible things and say, I didn't really mean it. No, you meant it when you were angry. That was out of the mouth your heart just spoke. Sometimes when you get, especially an abuser talking, it won't be hard to get him to say, "Well, she did this and she did that, and she finally got what she was asking for." Many people blame anger on something outside of themselves. Uh, back to my cases in the beginning, all of those people would say, "Well, if if other people would treat me the way I deserve to be treated, I would never get angry." And it's true. If if any person were God, he would be happy. That if you know, every child is happy as long as he gets his own way, and people will say, "Well, it's it's it's." You know, I, I knew a pastor who had a horrible problem with anger. He says, well, if we just get rid of this one family or this one elder, then I wouldn't get angry anymore. Well, it was his heart. And, you know, Mark 7, Jesus is explaining, it's from the heart that sin comes. Circumstances and people squeeze us, and you find out what's inside when you get squeezed. Um, some people try to blame genetics. We'll talk about that later, Or upbringing. Anger is very dangerous, uh, I don't know how many of you saw the Avengers movie. I did, but I'm not sure why. Um, it was a family duty. But, um, you know, the picture there of the Incredible Hulk. And when, when he turned green and got ten times his normal size, he broke things, didn't he? And he was at risk of others. But I've counseled some Incredible Hulks. And some of them are actually female and five foot three and don't weigh much more than 100 pounds. But... The rage comes, and the Scripture says that when you're angry, you're giving the devil an opportunity. The Proverbs says, Do not be eager to, in your heart to be angered, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. First John 3 says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, in verse 15. It, it does lead to actual acts of murder, Cain killing Abel. Attempted murder, Saul was throwing spears at his own son in anger. So often it's verbal murder. And, and I've heard things in counseling sessions or I've heard conversations described to me that are just heartbreaking. People in anger say things that leave wounds that will last a lifetime. I hate you. I wish you would just leave me. I wish I'd never married you. I am repulsed by your touch. I wish you'd just divorce me. I'd like you to die. The proverb says, with his mouth a man destroys his neighbor. Probably none of us would like a five-minute recording of the worst things we've ever said, even this month, to be played in front of this crowd. And as, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, anger is giving the devil an opportunity. He's the one who is a liar and a murderer from the beginning. Uh, I tried to explain this. There's a, a man who was both verbally and physically abusive to his wife. He was actually kind of a macho guy, and I was trying to explain to him said, you know, what you're doing is so dangerous and destructive to your family. Be like, what, what would you do if there was somebody trying to break in the door of your house and they were going to rob and harm your wife and your child? What would you do? I said, I would fight that person. I would do anything I could. This guy likes to fight anyway, but you know, I would, that would be a legitimate anger, and I would fight this guy, and I would do anything I could to protect my family. I said, your sinful heart of anger is letting the devil into the door of your house. And he is wreaking havoc on your wife and your child, your marriage, your neighbors, your testimony. And you need to fight this sin as fiercely as you would fight a robber coming, Trump coming through the door. Spurgeon writes that anger has a tendency to run wild. Very frequently, anger is the madman's firebrand. It destroys relationships. It destroys objects. It destroys reputations. You cannot be a leader in the church if you are pugnacious, uh, a lot of people who are officers in the church probably are on the verge of disqualification because of anger. Often it's anger only witnessed by their families, sometimes witnessed by their fellow leaders. Anger leads to many sins. The proverb says, an angry man stirs up strife and a hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. A quick-tempered man acts foolishly. And it's like you know, we know in Timothy that The love of money is the root of every kind of evil, but in the same way, almost every sin you can imagine has been committed because of someone who allows anger in his heart and gives the devil an opportunity. People have committed adultery because they're mad, and they get revenge on a spouse with whom they're furious. Uh, People lie, people dishonor parents, people act judgmentally, people are full of bitterness and rage. Anger is often very closely related to other emotions which we counsel, Depressed people usually have a major element of anger, and in, in just their response, rather than lashing out, is just to kind of hold it in and to sink into misery. Anger is also dangerous because it's contagious. The proverb says, Do not associate with a man given to anger, or go with a hot tempered man, or you will learn his ways and find it a snare to yourself. Being around angry people uh, can make you angry. And that can be especially true in a family. So, what causes us to rage? What causes out-of-control anger? Now, this is where secular psychology begins to fall <clears throat> apart. Uh, the American Psychological Association and their website says, some people get angry more easily and more intensely than the average person does. They have a low tolerance for frustration, especially if infuriated in the situation or if the situation seems unjust. And they talk about how one cause of anger may be genetic or physiological. There is evidence that some children are born irritable, touchy, and easily angered. Those children are called boys. <laughs> um, but see, they're saying, well, some people have this genetic disposition. It's, it's not your fault. You've got, you got dealt a bad genetic hand. Others talk about nurture and environment, uh, that research has shown that family background plays a role. Typically, people who are easily angered come from families that are disruptive, chaotic, not skilled at emotional confrontations. I've also had counselees excuse their anger by saying, well, my doctor put me on Prendazone, and I can't control my anger, I just have to let it all hang out. A lot of times, one of the real harms of these explanations is that somebody says, well, it's genetic, I'm Italian, or whatever you say it is, or I grew up in an abusing family, so... You have to understand, I'm just that way, and you just have to accept me that way. I can't help myself. Well, the Bible speaks very powerfully. And the you know, verses with, your, with which you're familiar a key verse. In Matthew 5:21, where Jesus says, You have heard that it was, the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And every, whoever says to his brother, You good for nothing shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, You fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Jesus is saying that anger is like unto murder. I don't know how many cases I've seen where you have a man, one concrete example, a man who was a marine drill sergeant. And he came in with his wife, and his wife was on the verge of leaving him. And he came in and says, I don't know what this is about. I've been married 12 years, and never once have I lifted my hand to my wife in anger. I have always behaved as a gentleman. I would never strike a woman. Well, then we hear how he berates his children, his wife, with screaming and name-calling, which is kind of the the bad personification of what probably even a marine drill sergeant should not be like. And as I showed him, Jesus says that every time you've done that, you have acted as a murderer. And he treats that with equal seriousness, as if you were actually hitting them. And and people need to understand it is sin, and it's not just hitting and committing crimes. Anger is murderous. And Jesus teaches that anger begins in the heart. The angry person wants to say, well, I'm angry because I'm mad at what the Supreme Court did. Or I'm angry because my wife didn't meet my expectations, or my boss messed me around and made me work on this day. And and Jesus, in this very crucial passage in Mark 7, it's been gone over many times in various contexts, where he says it's not what comes into you that makes you unclean, but it's what comes out of your heart. And and it's not something external. You can't take a pill that's going to make you angry, or eat food that's going to make you sinful. Uh, you you, You can't say to somebody, my wife or my kids, they made me mad. No, they exposed your heart and your heart is full of wickedness. And yeah, as long as you're treated like a king, you're not too hard to get along with. But actually, kings like that are never satisfied, sooner or later. But it is a heart issue, and it's sin. It's, not, it's the internal heart. It's not genetics. It's not environment. And, and anger reveals what's in the heart, typically in terms of what we believe. And it reveals the pride of a person that I want to be king. Thou shalt let my vehicle move as I wish and get out of my way. Thou shalt promptly respond to my emails. And on and on it goes. And thou shalt have my dinner ready at the appointed time. And it, it puts us in the center and, and this is where this is a passage that Tim already covered some, but it's worth turning to in James four yet again, when Paul says, "What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and really ask God." That we get angry. And it's wonderful in the Bible where, where James said, why do you fight? Well, he says you fight simply because you want something too much. It's, it's the desire of the heart. Um, and what can be confusing is oftentimes the thing we want is something we think is perfectly right. It's my right to have this. Uh, homeschool mom. Who wants her children to be obedient and neat, brush their teeth, floss twice a day, respectful, especially when adults are around or in church? They want to have children who don't act disrespectfully and embarrass them in crowds. And when that right is violated, that homeschool mom can turn into the Incredible Hulk. And rather than disciplining in love for the sake of the sanctification or at least the control, the foolishness of their child. Uh, she is angry, taking revenge, not because she cared about the child, but because she, her right to look good in front of others has been violated. Uh, the husband who wants affection from his wife. You say, well, what's wrong? A guy's not supposed to be looking at another woman. He's supposed to look at his wife. Why can't my wife be more affectionate? Why can't she make more effort in our relationship? And it's my right. And when... He comes to bed, and she's sound asleep, and there's a do not disturb sign hanging over her head, and that's not what he had in mind, and then he becomes angry, because he see, I have a right, and and that's what James is saying, and what confuses us is the person who's angry says, well, I'm not asking for anything unreasonable, I'm just asking for what the Bible says I should get. The Bible says she should submit, and she's not submitting, or my children should obey, and... Uh, my husband should love me in a Christ-like way, and it's not happening, and Tom talked about this in his excellent talk on idols, that how even a legitimate desire, when it becomes a controlling desire or a demand, becomes a sinfully idolatrous desire, and the issue is, in, in, in verse 4, James touches upon it as well, where he says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God, and Our problem is is we we look for ultimate satisfaction in something other than the Lord. And we want, you know, I want my food, my way at my time, or I want my spouse to be this way, and we we desire this. And and we think, well, it's my right, I should have that. It's even in the Bible that I should have that. And yet it's not in your control to make it happen. And people, if you're married, you married a sinner, and they married a sinner, and your children are sinners, and people around you are sinners, and you live in a fallen world you're not going to get all the stuff you think you should have. But then in that moment, are you going to say, well, I just can't stand it if I don't get what I want? And out comes the rage because you're helpless in the face of anger. Or do you know that in that moment you need to ask God for the satisfaction that people never gave you and circumstances don't give you? It's back to Isaiah 55 verses 1 and 2. Why do you spend your money for what does not your do bread and your wages for what does not satisfy If having a dinner that consists of food you like made on time with a smiling family around the table who all want to just talk about you is your idol, you're going to be disappointed if it doesn't happen. If having a perfect husband or perfect wife is your idol, uh, they're going to disappoint you. And actually one of the things I have in the back, it's on page 33 I believe, is what provokes me to anger. There's a long list there. And it's all these things that you look at that And most of them, they're not wrong things to want. I want people to treat me fairly. I want to be respected. Um, And and when you're counseling people, one thing you're really trying to do is, what is it this person wants that's making him so mad? And the deceit that the solution is not changing other people or changing circumstances, which is often impossible. The solution is where God says, without money, without cost, come, buy, and eat, and be satisfied that it's turning to God in the moments when circumstances and people let you down. And rather than fighting and quarreling because they didn't meet your needs, to say, well, I guess it was God's plan for me not to have my need met that way, but I can always go to Jesus, the fountain of living waters, and find satisfaction in Him, I need to ask God. And I think it was asking. it's not just ask God, give me a better wife. Give me sweeter kids and more obedient kids. It's not wrong to pray for those things. Pray that they'll have a better husband and father as well while you're at it. But it's, it's going to God as the source of satisfaction. And we are angry because we are idolaters. And in the cases I began in the beginning, they all wanted something. You know, Angela wanted a wife he could completely trust. Grace wants a husband who will listen to her. John wants a, a co-worker, an assistant who will relieve his stress Uh, Jane wants peace in the home. Rusty wants his employees to work hard and do it right. Those aren't wicked desires, but then when when people don't succeed, the angry people have the the belief, and it's something, you get them talking, they believe they have these rights, including then the right to vent their anger on those who don't meet their needs. And it's self-centeredness and pride, and they've replaced their desire for the kingdom of God with the desire for their own kingdom and glory. People are now viewed as either instruments to be used for my objectives or obstacles in my way. I wouldn't get angry if you were a better wife. Rarely admitting he's wrong. It's always other people's faults. And a problem is angry people often succeed in the short term in getting what they want by manipulating others. They're, uh, you know, The wife who who says of her husband, well, he never really does work around the house until I nag him and really get mad, then he finally does it. Or the husband who says, well, my wife really doesn't pay attention to me until I get angry, and then she does that. Or even the, the mom who says, well, my kids don't obey me unless I yell and scream at them. Well, people will placate angry people. But that's not creating a relationship of love and mutual respect in the Lord. In the end, angry people suffer great loss. The sad thing is they lose the idols that they're so angry that they're not getting. They drive away the people. They have broken relationships, overwhelming stress, lack of peace. Well, how can you deal with it? How can we deal with anger? I'm going to go fairly quickly over the wrong ways, but on the American Psychological Association website, I, I read about anger management. There's a TV show by that title by a man who doesn't even need to act to be in the show, apparently. Um, but this is a statement, the goal of anger management is to reduce both your emotional feelings and the physiological arousal that anger causes. Well, what's wrong with that? It doesn't acknowledge us being in the image of God. It doesn't acknowledge that there's a spiritual sin problem. It's trying to deal with symptoms Without dealing with causes, and they talk about expressing your anger or suppressing your anger or calming your anger, and you know, it talks about relaxation techniques, deep breathing, and uh, slowly repeat calm words to yourself. You know, again, you see caricatures of this, don't you? Like in movies where, yes, I am at peace and all the world is good. I am at peace and all the world is good. And um, you know, do yoga or something or. Um, Cognitive restructuring, trying to change the way you think, and, uh, you know, the site says, angry people tend to curse, swear, or speak in highly colorful terms that reveal their inner thoughts. Try replacing these thoughts with the more rational ones. Instead of telling yourself, it's awful, it's terrible, everything ruined, tell yourself, it's frustrating, but it is understandable that I am upset. Now, there's, there's some things that actually will resonate. Like don't say the first thing that comes into your head and, and think carefully about what you want to say. Well, that's James 1.19, be slow to speak. The problem is they don't have anything good to say when it does come time to speak. They may say, slow down, count to 10, but they don't tell you what to tell yourself while you're counting to 10. Anger, by the way, delay will make anger cool off. Anger being an emotion, it's like you heat up a piece of metal, you leave it at room temperature, it calms after a while but the problem is when, you've, when you never dealt with the issue, the next time the problem comes, you just shoot right up again. Uh, another one they put on the website is to use humor. It says, if you think of a coworker as a dirt bag, picture a large bag of, full of dirt sitting at your colleague's desk, talking on the phone and going to meetings. Picture yourself as a god or goddess, a supreme ruler, who owns the streets and stores and office space, striding alone and having your way in all situations while others defer to you. Friends, that's what caused the problem. (laughs) They talk about changing your environment. It says, if your child's chaotic room makes you furious every time you walk by it, shut the door. They'd like that. Um, Then they say, well, maybe you need to go to a licensed mental health professional who can tell you to repeat silly words and picture dirtbags, I guess. Um, But they don't get to the heart of anger, understanding us as sinning. We have a spiritual nature. It's not just physical. And the answer that they give is powerless to really enact meaningful change. I counsel people sometimes who are simultaneously taking court-mandated anger management classes, and you hear the things they're learning. And and, and it it may create delay so that people don't get injured if they follow the instructions, but it does nothing to change the heart. At best, it's... It's polishing the outside of the cup, but the inside is still filthy. And even Christians have adopted the psychological terminology. I've heard, I heard a pastor one time say, I just have to vent now and then. Well, Freud would be proud of you. <laughs> but Jesus would not. Uh, there is one who speaks rashly, the proverb says, like the thrusts of a sword. And that's what they do on daytime TV, right? They scream at each other. One time they at the gym and... Right in front of me is Jerry Springer, and you're going to solve your problems by screaming at people, throwing chairs at them, venting your anger. Um, Ventilation is not a biblical answer. Sometimes it's displacement. You get a teddy bear and you whack it for a while instead of the person you're mad at, or you yell into a pillow, or uh, again, usually it's just excusing. Well, the rest of my time I want to spend on how can you, by God's grace, overcome anger? Every single major counseling we face has an answer in the Scripture. The answer in general is the Gospel. And there are specific ways the Gospel applies to help people with their anger. And the Proverbs says, watch over your heart. From from your heart flow the springs of life. It's exactly what Jesus said in, in, in Mark 7, that out of the heart these sins come. And the key is what you say in your own heart to leave yourself on autopilot and just to react the way that seems right. Well, there's a way that seems right to you, and it leads to death. We are responsible for what we think about, the Bible says. We have Philippians 4, 8, and 9. Think on, dwell on these things, what is good, right, pure, honorable. And, and your mind is going to tell you how righteous you are, how wicked the other person is, and how much bad they deserve to have happen to them. And you have to stop. When James says, be slow to speak, while you're being slow to speak, you need to address your own heart and also to realize that the issue here, my anger is not going to be solved by everybody in the world except for me becoming perfectly sanctified and treating me always the way I want to be treated. Actually, sometimes even the, the holy ones make you mad if you're full of sin. It's not going to be, my heart is not going to be fixed by the world becoming a perfect place and my candidates being elected to office and my sports team winning and referees never making a bad call. That's not going to happen. The only way this is going to be dealt with is if my heart changes. The world is not going to change. And and the way that is done is through putting truth into our minds and hearts. And uh, I'll tell you a personal story. I was working on this actually when our church had family camp, and I'd hide in my room, and I was trying to prepare this talk which Craig and Marcia burdened me with. And um, so I couldn't enjoy family camp. I, I didn't get mad then, though. Other people were doing the zip line and swimming and shooting and I'm in my room working on this talk. But it was okay. I was just frustrated. I wasn't mad. Um, But I get done with this thing and I'm, I'm reasonably pleased. I'm on the right track. I'm using a lot of stuff I've done in counseling which I'm going to share with you in a moment. And so we drive down the mountain and I pull into my house and I walk inside and it looks like pack of raccoons have been in my house, shh, tearing the place apart looking for food. But all it was was my 24-year-old son, who was nowhere to be found. He was gone. The car was gone. And there's food out of the refrigerator left. There's plates. There's dishes. There's mess. You can hardly walk from one side of the room to the other. And I started to get really angry. I'm inventing things. To, I'm imagining what I'm going to say to him. when I call him on the phone. I am Thinking of taking everything he owns and putting it in the front yard and maybe putting a yard sale sign or free, take this. Um, I'm, I'm trying to figure out where he can sleep in the future. I may lend him a tent after I take away his cell phone and the car. Um, and I've got this, I'm, I'm, I'm and this thing, you know, I just spent three days working on this anger talk. I get to practice now. And I actually went through what I'm about to tell you. I said, okay, what are the five things? Five things, what are they? Um, And if you've observed me in counseling, I mean, there are people here that can do these almost as well as I can because they've seen me do it so much, but with angry people, I will actually have them take index cards or something and write down, sometimes I take three, but I'm going to give you all five now because you're a sophisticated crowd that, but the point is is that I need to, you know, like Lloyd-Jones said, stop listening to myself, start talking to myself. And so I have five things I'm going to go through that in a first counseling session with an angry person, I want them to know. And it's really founded on a lot of what I've said before, so I'm going to go through it fairly quickly so John can also speak this morning. Um, first of all, I want something too much. I am an idolater. Back to James. What is it? that I am demanding. My desires have become demands. I am angry and quarrelsome because I'm not finding my satisfaction in Christ. I think there's something or someone who's going to make me happy. And I need to repent of that. I need to get my focus off of what I want and onto God who alone can satisfy me. So first, I want something too much. I'm an idolater. What is the idol? And I need to be a worshiper of God. Second, I am not God. Particularly, I'm not judge. James 1.20 says, The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Now, that's an obvious verse, but when you're angry, you think the anger you have will achieve the righteousness of God. I had a sense that taking away a car and a cell phone and dumping all of his possessions and kicking him out of the house would somehow bring justice to the situation of my house being torn apart and my son having departed. And so... We think, if I just give them a piece of my mind, if I just say how I feel, somehow now the balance will be right. No, I'm just trying to overcome evil with evil and I'm making more evil. But I'm not God. And Romans 12 also says, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. When you're angry, you're wanting to get revenge. And it can be, I want to tell them what I think, I want to, you know, it could be worse, hit them or kill them, but... Whatever it is, or actually it can be just ignore them and give them the silent dream. I mean, lots of ways you can get revenge. And the passage I love for this, if you want to look in Genesis 50 for just a few moments, is the story of Joseph. You know that story where Joseph's brothers, back in chapter 37, they beat him up, threw him into a pit. They were going to let him die there of starvation and dehydration, but then they learned they could make some money on the deal. So they sold this man of the covenant family into a foreign house of idolaters, into, ended up being a slave in Egypt, where more bad things happened, which is a result of what the brothers did. He's falsely accused of a sexual assault. He's thrown in prison. You know the whole story. He's prime minister. They bow before him. Well, in Genesis 50, Daddy Jacob has died. And the brothers say in verse 15, What if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father charged us before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Now, This is narrative, and so it's subject to interpretation. I don't think Daddy told them that. I think if if Jacob wanted Joseph to know that he should forgive the brothers, Jacob had all kinds of opportunity to tell Joseph that. I think they're probably making it up. But either way, they feel very guilty, and they're thinking, Joseph will do to us what we would do if we were in his position. Now he can take revenge, and Daddy won't be there to see it. But what does Joseph say? The first thing he says is, do not be afraid. Am I in God's place? That's what he's saying. I'm not God. Therefore, it's not my job to judge you even though you've sinned against me. Had they sinned against him horribly? Yes. Did they deserve to die? Yes. But Joseph realized it is not his office to judge. And this is so important. This is a really crucial point because there is much injustice in the world. Uh, you, You see the man who's screaming at the radio because of whatever politics is happening now. And you may never get justice in America according to the way you think things ought to be. You, you see in a marriage, things are often unfair. With your kids, what they do is often unfair. Uh, people are victimized by crimes or assaults in government or the church. or you know, it, it doesn't always do its job. But God is just. It's His job. You can trust Him. And it's not your job. You're not God. Which brings you to the next point, which is the center point of the gospel is God has been very gracious to me. That's the third thing to say to yourself. This is really putting you into the gospel. In, in Ephesians 4, verses 31 and 32, Paul says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away with you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And you see, what needs to be done is the angry person is focused upon the sin of his spouse, his friend, whoever it is he's angry with. And, and what, what Jesus teaches us, we'll talk about it in a moment from the parable of, of the unmerciful servant as well, is that when you realize that God has shown much grace to you, and you have been forgiven much, God wants you to be a forgiving person. Forgive others as you've been forgiven, Paul says. And what I would do in a counseling session I would have the, the counselee read out loud in Matthew 18, 21 and following the parable of the unmerciful servant. You know the parable, right? The guy owes his master 10,000 talents. Well, a talent is like, whatever, 100 years away. It's like billions of dollars. Jesus is using hyperbole. There's no way a slave is going to go owe his master billions and billions of dollars, like the Greek national debt, just this massive amount of money. Okay, And he begs the master, and the master forgives him, then the other servant owes the first servant hundred denarii. Now, something people often miss in this parable, we think, oh, hundred denarii, that's like hundred pennies or something. A denarii is a day's wage. So if you make $60,000 a year, that's a third of a year's salary, if you're taking off the Lord's Day, that's like $20,000. It's not a small thing. And the temptation of our hearts is to say, you've really hurt me. You've slandered me. You've betrayed me. You weren't faithful to me. You know, the thing that could be the thing that really make you angry. And, and they, they owe you $20,000. They owe you the hundred denarii. It's a lot. And the more you think about it, the more angry you get, right? And you dwell upon it. And, and and I've had a personal experience in the providence of God where when I was in my 20s, and I'll share this with the counselees as well, that I worked overseas, worked for an oil company, made some good money. And uh, somebody who I trusted basically st- stole a large part of that money. They borrowed it and it disappeared. And I would get tempted. It was more than a third of a year's wage. But what I learned is that if I, if I think about the, the thousand talents I've been forgiven, if I think about the cross, if I think about God's grace to me, I couldn't stay mad. I was thinking as we were singing, You know, all I have is Christ, and you're remembering what he has done for you. Friends, if you start thinking about instead of on the horizontal level, what my neighbor did to me, if you start focusing upon what Christ has done for you, you know your sin better than anybody. You know you're the chief of sinners. God has had infinite mercy upon you. And if, if you start singing that hymn in your head or quoting to yourself Ephesians 4, I would picture myself sometimes as the unmerciful servant wanting to say, pay what you owe while you're choking the guy in light of what you've been forgiven. And the master at the end of the parable is very angry. And uh, you can't stay mad. God's anger against me was turned away by Christ. And so I can forgive. It's not just an example. It empowers me to forgive. I know because I practice this sometimes. I know because my experience is that every time I start to get angry, when I force myself to think about my sin and Christ's cross, I can't stay mad. You have to force yourself not to think about the gospel to be angry. So I've been forgiven much. God has been gracious to me. Then fourth, God is in control. Of course, angry people want control. uh, But you are not meant to be in control. The Lord has established his throne in heaven. His sovereignty rules over all. Uh, This is, and also in the Joseph story, this is the verse that's really famous. He says, as for you, speaking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. You see, when you believe in a sovereign God, even when your spouse lets you down or your business partner cheats you, it doesn't deny that they did evil and they're accountable to God. He's the judge. But God, in His sovereignty, works all things together for good for those who love Him, for those who are called according to His purpose. You're not in charge. He's in charge. Just like Joseph, he may not have fully understood all those years when he went through all those trials, but he could look back and say, yes, God meant it for good. He had a purpose in this, and I have to trust him. And probably one thing he's doing is sanctifying me. Trials are the only way that can happen. And then the fifth thing to write on the index card is I need to remember who I am. I am a new creature in Christ. I am dead to sin and alive to God. In Romans 6.11, we've talked so much about this. That when you feel like you just can't control yourself, and uh, the, the man who had been such an angry person before he was saved in fights and gangs, then I started saying you need to remember that man died, Romans 6. You are now a new man in Christ. You were once enslaved to that, you've been set free because of the gospel. You don't have to give in to the anger. Now, I also have in your notes things I don't have time to go over thoroughly with you, but if you had another session, okay, that's session one. Session two, here's five more things to remember. Remember, it's God's grace, it's the fruit of the Spirit that I can have self-control. God will not allow me to be tempted beyond what I am able. What the temptation will give me the way of escape. Uh, One of the speakers used this example you know, where, Jay Adams put it this way, where, you know, a mom is screaming at her kids and the phone rings and it's Mrs. Gossip on the other line. Shh, hello, how are you? You know, just, we have the capability. The man, remember I described the Marine drill sergeant? Um, I said, do you ever talk to your captain that way? Well, no. You have self-control. Does he ever mess you around? Yes, he does. Worse than my wife sometimes. You have self-control. You're just choosing not to use it. In the same way that you have the self-control not to hit her, you just need to decide that my self-control needs to be not at this point of physically striking her, but at this point of verbally murdering her. And the Spirit will help you to do that. And then it's God's grace that enables me to speak with gentleness. Ephesians four twenty nine. Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only what is good for edification, according to the need of the moment. Uh, The the Spirit of God, when we become believers and we're united to Christ, changes our our tongues. That's also been spoken of in this conference. The Proverbs says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. Uh, Sometimes I will role-play this with a couple where they'll describe a fight or a conversation and I'll go back and say, Well, this happened now. How could you have applied Proverbs 15.1 and Ephesians 4.29 in this situation? For example, um, You know, someone's criticized, and instead of defending and attacking, which is our gut sinful reaction, to say, well, you're right, I'm actually a bigger sinner than you knew. I'm the chief of sinners, and I know, it amazes me that God in his grace still loves me in spite of the fact that I fall so far short of being what a perfect husband or pastor or friend should be, and I need to learn better how to serve Christ and his people. Kind of. Spoils the argument, doesn't it? So God helps us to answer that way. And and even to do good to those who wronged us, which is heat burning calls on their head in Romans 12. Joseph not only forgives his brothers, he said, stay here, I'll take care of you and your children, your little ones. So he doesn't just abstain from revenge, he actually does good, which is also what Romans 12 says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Um, It's God's grace that helps me to interact to receive correction, not to be a scoffer who hates those who correct me, but to be a wise man who loves them, even if they're not doing it the best way. And then to restore those who wrong me, who are angry. Uh, so often in a discussion, it's, you know, this person's angry, and the harsh word stirs up more anger. You know, Galatians 6, another passage we use many times in counseling. If anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. In very practical terms, when, when a couple tends to argue or fight or someone is, is prone to anger, taking Galatians 6, where, you know, when am I in a position to correct somebody? When am I in a position to tell them where I think they're wrong? Well, it's only if I'm spiritual. Well, what does that mean? We'll read back a few verses. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and pain and, and so forth. And that if that is not the state of your heart, you're going to do some damage. If you're in the flesh, which is usually what we are, almost always what we are when we're angry, you're just going to make things worse. And and if you're going there again, and and so much of it is instead of focusing upon the fact that this person has wronged you, and and you want to make it even, realize that, no, they've wronged God. My sin is primarily against you and you only have I sinned, Psalm 51. And if they have done me wrong, and I'm tempted to be angry, realize, no, my job is to restore them to God as myself being a fellow sinner, and to do so with love, because it's really hard to get corrected, isn't it? And so it, even when we need to correct, to do so with the gentleness, the fruit of the Spirit, to restore them to God. Um, I've got other practical principles as well in terms of not being quarrelsome, and do not let the sun go down in your anger. Um, I want to briefly go through some questions that are very common. Well, When is anger righteous? And and Robert Jones in his book, Uprooting Anger, has a great threefold definition. Another thing you ought to remember, it's something you could also write down a card for your counselee. Number one, a real sin has taken place. And that's a sin against God, according to the Bible. Um, So a real sin has taken place. Two, my concern is for for God's kingdom, not my own. Sometimes they say, that person broke their word. But the reason you're really mad isn't that you're on a quest for truth. The reason is they messed you around. And the psalmist says, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And so, so often we're angry not because of the degree of unrighteousness of the other person, but because of our concern for ourselves. So are you upset because God didn't get what he wants or because you didn't get what you want? And then third, anger is righteously expressed. A lot of times you think you make it, well, yeah, it's a real sin, and it's also a sin against God. But then if you yell and scream and tear somebody apart, it's still not righteous anger. Righteous anger is expressed in gently correcting a brother or sister, not taking personal revenge. Uh, how can you be, you know, it says be angry and don't sin. Um, what I take that to be in, in, in Ephesians 4, I mean, is that you're getting provoked all the time. And the question is, when you feel the heat, what are you going to do? Are you, when you feel the heat, going to be slow to anger as you remember, what are those five things again? I want something too much. What else? I'm not God. God has been gracious to me. God is in control, and I'm a new man in Christ. And So being, being angry, you feel the flesh. It would be like if a man sees a billboard with a woman without many clothes on. He has a flash of temptation, but then are you going to build on that and let it keep going, or are you going to turn away from it by the grace God gives you? So when you, you're going to be provoked, but then don't fall into sin, but instead put out the fire of anger with the gospel. Um, I don't have much time. Is it ever permissible to be angry with God? No. God is never unjust. You can ask questions, but you better do so respectfully. What about being angry with yourself? The woman who had an abortion and now she's childless. The man who had a great job opportunity and, and blew it and now he's been in financial trouble every, ever since. Um, you know, a lot of times we're angry at ourselves because of our pride. It's, I'm better than that! And, and you're all stirred up within. And, and when you realize you're chief of sinners and that what you are is by God's grace. The verdict that matters on your life is not how you feel about yourself. And this is also where you'll hear people when they're apologizing, they go, I did not live up to my usual high standards. That's not repentance, that's pride. So much of shame is pride. You're not better than that. You're chief of sinners. You are what you are by God's grace. And if God has declared you forgiven, that's what you need to believe. And it is of grace. I have some, an outline for kind of how to counsel an angry person. I have some resources there. I just want to conclude uh, with the theological word propitiation. You know what propitiation is? It's used in several places in the New Testament. One is in Romans 3 where Paul says for, in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. That was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time so that He would be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The one Being in the universe who has a right to be mad is God. And he had a right to be mad at us because we were his enemies and we were sinners. And God sent his son into the world to propitiate the wrath of God. To propitiate his own wrath. The anger, the just anger of God against our wickedness and sinning against his holiness and his righteousness was satisfied on the cross where Christ died for us. And when you understand that, when you appreciate how God's anger by grace has been turned away, when you think upon that, when you sing about that, when that's in your heart, that's what transforms you from being a person of anger or rage or the Hulk. And if you feel like you're becoming the Hulk, you can feel the rage building within. When you remember that God's wrath against you has been propitiated upon the cross, That's how the gospel will transform you into a person of grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, which is perfect. We thank you for the truth that our anger not just can be suppressed or delayed, but it can be extinguished by the gospel. Help us not to try to play God in judging others. Help us to seek after you as our greatest good you who will always satisfy us. Help us to remember who we are in Christ, being set free from sin, and to acknowledge that you are in control of all things, we can trust you. Lord, give us repentance over our our pride, our self-justification, our self-centeredness, and even trying to find satisfaction in people changing or circumstances changing. Help us to be like that tree planted by the water. The leaves will never turn brown. Because even when the heat comes, we find our satisfaction, our strength in you that we might bear fruit to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2012, IBCD, all rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.